You're listening to a Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference podcast. The 11th annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at Maynooth University on the 18th and 19th of August, 2023. The conference was generously supported by the McMorris Project, the Irish Research Council, the Department of English at Maynooth University, the Arts and Humanities Institute at Maynooth University, and Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the conference was recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with UCD's History Hub. You can access an archive of more than 250 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences on History Hub's website, historyhub.ie, as well as on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Derek Wayman from Newcastle University, entitled Hovenden, Saunders and Lord Annesley. A close look at two cases of land forfeiture, restoration, legal loopholes and the judicial policy in the post-restoration period. I found a couple of old cases concerning post-restoration Ireland and the idea of this presentation is to see two things. One, what I can learn from you in terms of the gaps I have and two, to see if there's any mileage, if this, these findings have got any legs, if there's, there's room for them in some Irish history journals. And it, it comes from um, some possibly less explored uh, sources. So I'm talking here about the law reports here, which have two great merits. One, they were published and widely disseminated and therefore weren't all blown up. I've been working on a New York reprint, in fact. And the other is they're very good on detail. Because you've got a court case, the judge is interested in the fine print of what everybody's been up to. And the characters in this uh, rogues gallery, um, Arthur Ansley, Lord of Anglesey, possibly third most powerful man in Ireland, and some opponents, the Hovendons and the Saunders, relative minnows. Um, And what the presentation is about is about forfeiture following the 1641 rebellion and restoration of a limited part of the land and some rather epic struggles and the dodgy dealings between all of these parties as they desperately tried to hang on to or regain this land. Of course, there was a great competition for land. There wasn't enough to go round. So it's, it's largely a socio-economic analysis and hopefully quite illuminating at the low level of detail, the bigger picture you may be more familiar with. Uh, and a little bit of law, because our um, English Lord High Chancellor of Ireland, Lord Reedsdale, Um, introduce some rather conservative legal principles we'll spend a little bit of time on too. So let's start with our first um, minnows, the Hovendons. The more famous Hovendons are the northern branch. Um, They're known because um, O'Neill was fostered with son three and son five of one Giles Hovenden, who came originally with uh, Anthony St. Ledger. And Richard and Henry got caught up in Tyrone's rebellion, so we can see that this branch of the family at least had a certain rebellious aspect. But we're not concerned with them. We're concerned with the southern Hovendons, who set up in Leash, just down the road, said to be one of the seven septs, and they were founded by Giles's second son, Thomas, Thomas of Tankertetal. So Thomas's, the, the disputed land in question was given to Thomas by Charles II back in 1635, Uh, in perpetuity, fee simple in legal terms. All the Crown got back for it was a rent. And these were the lands. Uh, I apologise if I can't say them very well, but we have four denominations here uh, not far. 
And these are the lands upon which the great struggle is going to take place. So in order to explain all the dodgy deals and um, all of the later things, we've got to say a little bit about how this land was set up. If you're an ambitious um, family with dynastic um, pretensions, what you're going to do is settle the land and to try and keep it within the family. So when uh, Thomas's son, John Hovenden, got married, the lands were settled by Thomas as follows. Thomas keeps it for life, John then gets it for life, and then it goes down the male line, so long as that line endures. If it fails for some reason, it goes back to John, which doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, but that means it goes to his more lateral relatives. So it's a backstop in case the male line fails. You can see where this is going, can't you? So at least John took part in 1641. There's accusations about his father and his son, but no official sanction came of it. So what happens here? Well, Thomas is dead by the time the Cromwellians try to put in place the forfeiture. So we're just left with this bit here from John's life interest onwards. Um, it turns out that John is successful in the court of claims and his interest is restored. There was a little interesting and vital complication here. The Cromwellian forfeitures considered you know, anything connected with the rebel to be tainted, so that wipes out the whole thing. The Charles II settlement was considerably more narrowly drawn, so it said, well, John's bid is not tainted, he can keep that. So Thomas hadn't been alive, that would have gone. Uh, John's sons, again, not tainted. Uh, sorry, John, John was tainted by rebellion, so that goes. But John's son's interest actually comes from Thomas. That's not tainted either, so they can keep this. So this, again, it goes through John, and that, that stays forfeit. So the net effect of the course of claims and the restoration was that the Hovindans get to keep this part only. Remainder to John's son's entail male. So what you do is you wait for they have to wait for John John to die, and then his son, also called Thomas, confusingly, and the rest of the male line can keep hold of this land. And um, when if their line fails, it goes back to who the land was granted to by the Cromwellians, and that turns out to be one major Sir William Walker was in the new model army. So that's how the restoration settlement leaves the land. Um, an interesting side point, if anyone can help later, is that so far it appears that the Hovendons are Protestant, but they're described as Papists in the law reports and again as Protestant in the down survey afterwards. So a little mystery there, but it doesn't actually change what happens to the land. So the fight is going to be over these things, the, the tail mail and what happens afterwards, because that is going to go to Walker, uh, if and his family, if John's um, Thomas Jr.'s mail line fails. So let's start talking about what happens now following the restoration. Walker, who was granted the land by the Cromwellian administration, felt this obvious insecurity for his title upon the restoration. So in 1660, seeing what's coming, he concludes what we would nowadays call a sale and lease back of the disputed lands with Arthur Ansley, 
So he gets 600 quid, gives the lands to Ansley, and then leases them back for £100 a year for 99 years. And Ansley, in his deal, agrees to compensate Walker if this land is later recovered under the Charles II settlement. So this shifts the risk. So Walker has shifted his risk here onto Ansley. He doesn't have the land except for 99 years at a rent, but he's less at risk of it being taken back and restored to the Hovendons. So this shifts an enormous risk, it seems, onto Ansley. But um, Ansley was deeply involved in fashioning the Irish land settlement. And if you look at section 20 of the 1662 Act, Ansley's managed to secure for himself a super-priority clause saying that if any land is uh, restored from a Cromwellian grantee back to the original landholder, it doesn't apply to him. So he managed to shift the risk off him. So a very good deal, it seems, for Arthur Ansley and a good deal for William Walker as well. Well, we know what happened next the 1662 and 65 Acts of Settlement and the Court of Claims, the risk that the land would be restored to the original owner, eventuated. Um, the strange thing is, it seems that the new title to Ansley, given to from Charles II over the Hovenden lands following the Court of Claims, didn't actually conform to this super-priority clause in Section 20. It preserved the Hovenden interest. So why did this happen? Not really sure. It seems to be an act of royal mercy. The Hovenden's got some kind of favour here. The problem thus for Ansley is both under these deals, because he'd made a lot of them with not just with the Hovenden, but a lot of other people. We know this from the law reports. And under the general policy of retrenchment, he had to compensate other people with lands, and he didn't have enough. That's a pretty common theme in this period. So what is a super landholder going to do? Stepping out of the law reports into some manuscripts here, this is, this is from Cart. Um, what this scroll seems to mean is a way of dealing with the problem. So think about this. Ansley's got to compensate lots of people with land. Of the Hovenden lands, he's only got it until John dies, then it goes back to the Hovenden. So he's got this little slice of time, and it turns out that John's quite old, so it's a very short amount of time. So this land is useless. No one's going to want the land for John Hovenden's lifetime. So he says, John Hovenden, someone says, John Hovenden's of great age and should pay £500 for the early return of the lands to the family. Of course, this is going to suit both of them. They get their lands, Hovenden's get their lands back early, Ansley gets some money, which he can do a lot more with than the land for 10 years or something. So that's an economic deal there. It's not mentioned in the judgment, so it most likely didn't happen. But this is the kind of way um, Ansley was trying to deal with this loss of land. If anyone's interested in the uh, transcripts, I can give it to them afterwards, because it's, it's really quite an eyeful here. So... It doesn't happen. But looking at this lands, um, the next deal in our series of dodgy deals is one of Robert Saunders, also formerly in the New Model Army. 
At this point, it seems like the Walkers have got fed up of their position. They're cutting their losses. They exit the previous deal by assigning their lease to the Walkers. So you've now got Ansley as landlord and, sorry, the Saunders as the tenant. And that leaves the Saunders to try to fight the Hovendons for possession of this land. The judge is quite baffled as to why they should do this, because it's a huge risk, and there must have been some motivation to take this huge risk. We'll come on to how the Saunders tried to make this work and make some money out of it shortly. But back to the Hovendons for now. At the end of the 17th century, uh, it turns out that Thomas is old. He's only produced three sons from 1693 onwards, all illegitimate. It turns out he dies in 1695. But before he does that, he joins in with King James, and there are later forfeitures. Two of the denominations are, well, they're all forfeited. Tankerstown and Congarrett are lost, but they are, under the Articles of Limerick, he gets Skihanna and Clompeers back. But, as I set this up for you earlier, the risk for the Hovendons was always the failure of the male line, which means the land goes back to Ansley rather than to one of the younger Hovendons, a Walter Hovenden. So, what are you going to do if you're a dynastic family with a settlement you want to break the tail of? Well, you want to break this entailment, which goes down the male line, and turn it into a perpetual estate in land. You may be aware of some popular literature in which, which is wholly based around the impossibility of doing this. Well, that's unfortunately just artistic licence. There's been a well-documented legal procedure to break entails since at least 1472. It's a procedure called the collusive common recovery. Bear with me, I'm not going to get into too much detail here. And if the procedure is done correctly, it converts this male tail line into a perpetual estate. Um, now, even the name suggests this is a bit fraudulent because this is going to take away Ansley's interest after the failure of the Hovenders' male line. Absolutely. Why would the courts even countenance allowing this? Well, normally this procedure was just used to resettle land entirely within a dynastic family. So no one outside of the family gained or lost. It was just a reorganisation within the family. What this didn't anticipate is when the land reverted outside the family, in this case to Ansley. Now, a well-known monarch there, you can probably guess which one, put together a package of feudal fiscalism. And um, what Henry VIII's statute said is, you can't have a collusive common recovery if the land is going to revert back to the crown, because especially before the 17th century, a lot of the land parceled out by the crown was for life only. And people like Henry VIII didn't want this being converted into perpetual estates. One thing the Irish land settlement did not anticipate was this situation where the land would revert not to the crown, but to someone like Ansley, who was not king and therefore could not rely on this protection here. So Ansley stood to lose under this procedure of breaking the entail. This is if the Hovenden succeeded in doing this. Because it turns out there are a lot of fiddly technical requirements with this legal procedure. 
And if they failed, the recovery wouldn't have succeeded. So when we finally get to judgment, this is one of the issues that the judge has got to decide. Did this happen? Was this done correctly? Did Ansley stand to lose the lands in favour of the Hovendons? But now let's go back to Saunders. If you remember, what Saunders did was take a huge risk of fighting the Hovendons off the hands of the Walkers. Well, the details are a little bit sketchy in the judgment, but following the accession of James II, he managed to physically force Hovenden out, he dispossessed him, but Hovenden got back in, and then he leases the lands to someone called Arthur Bambrick. So Bambrick's the guy who actually gets his hands dirty tilling the soil. What Saunders then persuades Bambrick to do is, not, is to pay rent not to the Hovendons, but to him. And the reason why this might be significant is because this might constitute squatters' rights, adverse possession of the land. They force out Hovenden by having 20 years of the rent go to Saunders rather than Hovenden. Again, leveraging the law. This carries on for a considerable amount of time. By the time we get to 1726, Robert Saunders' son Morley is the heir, and he's got this formerly Hovenden land. Now, by this time, the lease has only got 30 years left, and you know, it's a depreciating asset. On the Hovenden side, Walter is only 33, but it turns out he's only got one more to live, and he concludes a land swap deal. Gulgara goes to Hovenden, the others go to Saunders, they sign deeds confirming the ownership in the exchange. Um, there are a number of problems with this deal, but the two biggest ones are here. Ansley wasn't involved, and as superior landlord, he should have been, so it was a fraud on Ansley. And for rather poorly explained reasons, it's also said to have possibly been a fraud on Hovenden, most likely because the effect of the deal wasn't explained properly, and also for... Um, various other reasons that will be in the paper if you would like to know. So those are our dodgy deals. As you can see, pretty much everyone is trying to leverage something in the law in order to keep or get these disputed lands. So matters don't actually get to the Irish Court of Chancery until the very end of the um, 1700s, and they're reheard. So by the time we get the reports, we're in the early 1800s. The question in Saunders' case against the descendants of Lord Ansley is, did he get squatters' rights? Did he get adverse possession of the land by paying the rent, having the rent paid to him instead of the Hovendons? At the time, this was an unsettled question. If you don't pay your mortgage for, it's 12 years now, and the bank doesn't enforce against you, you get the land free of the mortgage. And this was true back then as well. So it wasn't a completely outrageous question. The judge, Lord Reesdale, says, well, actually, no, things are different for landlord and tenant. You know, you can't get adverse possession against your landlord because you're admitting his title. There's a question of loyalty there. So Saunders loses out. The only thing he succeeds in is helping a judge develop the law. And then we come on to Hovenden's case. And three main issues here. Did they manage to break the entail and dispossess Ansley? 
And was there fraud on Hovind and by Saunders, in which case he can get that deal set aside? The interesting point here is how the judge decided the case, or rather partly decided it. He didn't decide the first two questions. He said, well, actually, you're out of time. There's a legal principle called limitation, which says after a certain amount of time, 20 years for land back then, we don't reopen disputes. We consider the matters settled in order to quiet issues. The argument that Hovind had made is because there's fraud, time doesn't run. We don't have this matter of limitation. The judge didn't accept this. What's interesting about these cases are a large number of these dicta about what's motivating the judge in making that decision. He's seen a number of such cases all concerning the disturbed state of Ireland. And if we had had legal discussion of the first two questions, it would have produced proceedings which would have thrown the whole country into confusion. So we're looking at bigger matters than the case just at hand. So he says, it doesn't matter that there's fraud. If the fraud had been concealed, that's a different matter, but you knew perfectly well what had happened. The 20 years is up. We've got to damp matters down, and I'm just not going to hear this dispute, no matter what the merits or the demerits are. And this case has been taken to state a principle of limitation. Now, these are universal principles, um, more recent cases in the UK have said. But there's two real reasons to have limitation. The first is to deal with the fact that after so many years, evidence is lost, people forget, and producing judgments on limited information, well, it results in more injustice than justice. But there's a second reason for limitation as well, which is particularly pertinent in Ireland. They're sometimes called statutes of peace. No matter what the merits and demerits, no matter what we know, matters just have to be quietened down. And in Ireland, in this period, this produced particularly heavy pressures and particularly heavy influences on the judge to make that decision. Because as we've seen, just about everyone was at fault here. But the judge wasn't interested. So, as an epilogue, I noticed that in one month after deciding Hovenden's case, Reedsdale, the judge, writes to the Lord Lieutenant about the state of the records. And I think the Irish Records Commission was put together um, shortly after that. So this was a judge um, realising the judge's instinct that records should be made available so that things can be decided properly, even if we've got this limitation backstop. So the lessons to be drawn from this story are that a lot of people engaged in rather ill-fated defects to uh, ill-fated attempts to leverage defects in the law. Everyone was at fault by some criterion. And this produced unique pressures because of just how bad things were here in Ireland. Um, the determining matters which motivated the judge in developing the law, in Saunders' case, was loyalty, loyalty to one's landlord. And in Hovenden's case, it was the need to dampen matters down, the so-called peace reason for limitation. As a final reflection, we can see who these principles favour, and that's the incumbent. He who muscled his way in with the most physical or legal force and managed to stay there by fair means or foul. And that's a structural limitation of the way 
Reidsdale set up the law here. It favours the established, in this case, Ansley, who won both cases. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Tudor Institute Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference. For more information on the conference, go to TudorStuartIreland.com. You can access the archive of Tudor Institute Ireland Conference podcasts on History Hub's website, historyhub.ie, as well as on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud and Spotify.